Hello, everyone, and welcome to 2562 of the correct century. That's right. You thought you were in the year of our Lord? No, you're wrong. We're in a better century now, the correct century, where people don't forget things like leaving the toilet seat up or going on the wrong side of the street. Looking at you, Europe. Anyways, I am here, the ever amazing. Itaku, along with my co-hosts, Mr. Hipster Snack. Glad to be here. And Cog. What's up, everybody? And this week we had something kind of different, didn't we, guys? Indeed. Yeah, very different from the last two outings. The last two outings weren't much alike either. Yeah, we've kind of been bouncing around. We started with original Gundam on our Gundam Thon, then we hit G Gundam which was a alternate century, and now we're at turn A. The correct century. So just uh, to give everyone kind of the cliff's notes, the correct century in turn A is some point in the vast, infinite future. We don't exactly know where. We know, according to what we're told later on, that we're in the 26th century, of the correct century calendar. But where that leaves us, or ultimately if it does actually mean anything, or if this is in in any way related to other Gundam, well, I mean, it is related. We actually have a certain character who sees and knows other Gundams. So we know that it's related, but in what capacity? No one knows because, well, let's just be... Truthfully honest, Corin Nander is not a good primary source. But we have people on Earth who are living in something uh, about to what the 20, 20th century, turn of the 20th century is. Is that a fair assessment, gentlemen? I would say, yeah, about 19th century, something like that. Yeah, yeah, thereabouts. And then we have our other players, the Moon Race. Probably the easiest way to describe this is with another kind of pop culture reference. They're basically Krypton from the Donner. Richard Donner films of Superman. They're weirdos who wear robes and have weird hairstyles and are incredibly arrogant and they have high technology and they live in space. And they really, really want you to know they're from the moon. (sighs) Oh, yes. There's an extremely high level of arrogance coming from the moon race about everything. It, It is delicious. Just delicious. But that being said... So the moon race is planning on returning to Earth for whatever reason. Initially, it's not really said. I believe later on they do mention they're kind of running out of resources ultimately, but they just want to return to Earth. They are kind of vague on that. They did bring up a little bit about how Princess Diana was kind of like tired of her her life on the moon. And since the, the Earth was seemingly restored since the fallout, that uh, that's initially what launches us into the beginning and why they send Loran, Loran, Keith, and Frandall, the three uh, scouts. And our boy Loran, poor Loran, he has so many things happen to him, mostly to his crotch. He gets 
not checked so often. <laughs> he, he, oh God, he does. <laughs> like, Jutaku and I were watching, and it just kept happening. He kept getting jabbed in the family jewels. And I'm just like, uh, dude, come on. He's like the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Certainly he doesn't deserve that. Yeah, I mean, Lord Gween, his his employer, this this incredibly, incredibly affable, like, you know, macho man who just has a big dirigible and just goes hunting and all the women love him. And he's just such a Chad that he just sees Laura and he's like, hey, Laura, no reason as to why. He's just like, yeah, yeah. Compared to me, you're just you're just uh, you're just a woman, Laura. <laughs> but uh, I mean, and then there's haha, guys, I have this brilliant plan. It involves Laura and wearing a dress. What? Ha <laughs> Too subtle. <laughs> but um, so we have the two groups coming into conflict. It's kind of funny initially because you have uh, Lord Gween and his other noble retainers all kind of discussing the possibility of war. And then the very next episode, we have an entire battalion of Wadoms just drop down and proceed to slice a tire chunk out of the city of Noxus where uh, Lord Gween lives. It's kind of funny and it's it's even funnier when you realize that later on when you kind of see the capabilities of the Moonrace Wadom unit and you're like there's no way that the airplanes that they deployed against these 70 meter tall mobile suits could have hurt them at all and yet they're like no man we gotta you know activate the beam cannon we gotta blow up these biplanes uh uh, oh oh lieutenant poe you you truly are going for the most war crimes committed in a in, in not victory Gundam. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm kind of sad that we weren't able to see Victory Gundam, but on the other hand, I'm kind of glad that we didn't see Victory Gundam because I don't want to be that depressed. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, geez. But um yeah, and so it's just kind of it's a very slow series. I mean, it's it's kind of a thing to say with an episodic episodic show like this but it is compared to mobile suit gundam compared to g gundam especially g gundam which is very monster of the week at least something's always happening but with turn a it's the the mobile suits are almost ancillary to just the fact of the prejudice between the earth race and the moon race and you know a lot of what lauren does is to try and bridge the gap even at personal cost to himself I remember there's that one scene where he, after trying to save a cow and there's, you know, a bite's about to break loose. He's like, guys, guys, you both like me, right? Yeah. I moon race. And everyone's like, what? And he, I mean, if he would have been completely fine, if he hadn't done that, but he actually brought a lot of, a lot of ire, a lot of, of anger towards him that he honestly did not need, you know, he didn't deserve. But he did it because, as Snack kind of said, he's just a really nice guy. And I think that that's kind of what makes it really charming. I think that's also part of what makes him qualified to be the hero of the series. Because Laurent knows that going into this, if he does this, his social standing takes a nosedive. And there's a lot of people who are going to feel betrayed. But he does it because he sees it as that bridge that links you know, earth and moon. 
It's not just a matter of the moon race looking down at the big blue planet going, hmm, free real estate. Although they totally did do that. Yeah, no, they, they, they totally did. They did talk about that a little bit because they were having earlier negotiations about coming down into the American Sunbelt area and wanting to settle there. And then there was a whole political issue with one of the leaders getting killed and it just devolved from there to the point that they were like, okay, so all the previous negotiating we were doing, yeah, that that didn't happen. We're going to start from scratch. Or as Snick liked to call it, the day that Santa canceled Christmas because that one <laughs> Earth race guy looked like suspiciously like Santa. And I kind of have to agree with him. Yeah, I don't know what Tomino has against Santa. I'm assuming that he did not get the toy of his choice when he was a child and never let it go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, quick quick aside, I did not get the Green Ranger Dragon Dagger and quit believing in Santa because of it. So I'm, I feel you, Tomino. Oh, oh man. That's that's terrible. So I I, <laughs> I, I would not murder Santa, which G Gundam and Terry <laughs> Gundam did. But I was like, man, Tomino really has it out for Santa. But, you know, the funny thing is, though, is I think that those two old guys, the one Moonrace official and the, and Santa, I think those are like the only two deaths I can think of. Or maybe Gim Ginganam at the end. But I mean, it's like, you know, like the people you really think would, would buy it, like War Crimes McGee, Lieutenant Poe, the one who actually kicks off uh, the conflict. She does. She survives to the end. She literally gets BTFO in like every single episode, but she survives. It, it's kind of a thing. It, it, this is a very casualty light series. Coran Nander, our everyday resident friendly crazy guy from the moon, gets thrown down a volcano. He survives. In fact, he he becomes a good guy. It, it's kind of kind of crazy. Yeah, that actually doesn't slow him down much. Yeah, I think the other one was just Agrippa. Yeah, that's true. Maintainer at the end. When he gets shot. So that's at least three. But um, I think part of that is because this wasn't necessarily like an all out war. It's a very long kind of drawn out sort of occupation. So it's, it is a very different kind of Gundam show because as a lot of Gundam has been, you know, very war based. This one was very much kind of focused on just a tense peace treaty negotiation. So a lot of the beginning is just this very tense squabbling back and forth like you talked about. Yeah. Honestly, and the cool thing I thought was really neat was like, apart from maybe the very first, uh, you know, Mobile Suit Gundam, there's a lot more emphasis on not just the number of mobile suits or what mobile suits you have, but just the entire conceit of having mobile suits. The fact that the militia forces, you know, start to find mobile suits and they find a bunch of high gogs. Or capuls, as they call them, but they're high gogs. I mean, really. And um, the entire thing is they're like, yeah, now we got our own mobile suits. We're going to be able to kick them moon race boys. And so it becomes less about just, oh, you know, I have the I, I have the new type Psychomu seed uh, system mobile trace fighter super mode. And I can shoot rainbow beams from my GN drive. And it's more just like, I got a Gundam now, and I'm going to shoot the moon bars. <laughs> the stereotype is not helped by the fact that a big portion of the center of the series happens 
canonically in Louisiana. And yet somewhere in Louisiana, they found a volcano. And I'd really like to know where on earth they were for that to work out. Oh, yeah, that was that that was kind of a thing. Well, I mean, if it's thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the future, it might uh, I could totally see the, the geography change. There's a bit. no plate underneath. There's no uh, f- there's no fault line underneath there. That's true, too. But <laughs> that was kind of a thing, too, is that uh, Snack and I, whenever the, the Borgemon Suicide Squad showed up, we always uh, would MST3K them as a bunch of hillbillies. So I'm like, who are we, Mr. Borgemon? We're going to go show them moonies. <laughs> we only tease the ones we love. Uh Yes. I mean, we we're technically in the American South, so we're we're technically making fun of ourselves but uh we we will say no more than that uh uh, speaking of which too also a a thing i noticed that i thought was really neat was unlike in other gundam series where the gundam the titular gundam will get power-up upgrades the turn a doesn't really get that instead it's more about loran just kind of figuring out what the turn a can do I mean, ultimately, he doesn't even realize that it's a Gundam. He just thinks, oh, it's the white doll. It's it's a special mobile suit. It's only until our, our once again, resident crazy person uh, shows up and starts going, Gundam! Gundam, fight me! That, you know, he's like, oh, I guess this thing's called a Gundam. Okay. By the way, I really liked Corin Nander's mobile suit. Just the entire fact that it could just, for whatever reason, some Moonrace engineer decided... You know, we need a mobile suit that can also transform into a dinosaur. And I mean, honestly, that's that's a thing, too. Like a lot of the Moonrace units are so weird looking. <laughs> Probably the closest I can think of are the Zanscare units from Victory. They're just all like curved lines and really weird placements of like uh, weapons and stuff completely at odds with uh, the, the general conventions of what mobile suits are supposed to be. So Turn 8 came out in 99, right? And it was produced for the 20th anniversary for Mobile Suit Gundam. And they ended up bringing a guy named Sid Mead, who was actually a really popular industrial designer. He did, did he, he actually worked on some iconic sci-fi films that we know, being Star Trek, the motion picture, Blade Runner, Aliens, and Tron. He did a lot of the technical designing for those films, and they actually hired him to come in and design the mobile suits for Turn A. And a big thing he was going for was, in the redesigns, was wanting things to feel a lot more aerodynamic, essentially. Yeah, it's funny, actually, that you mentioned that. You want to know something even crazier? Uh, The original design that he put forward to Tamino for Turn A is actually what we got as the sumo. So if anything, Harry Ord is piloting a Gundam in all but name when he's got his giant, solid, gold, weird, bulbous suit that he has. That was one of my... Because when I think back to Turn A when I was younger, I did kind of scoff at it a little bit because I was like, man, I don't I don't, I don't, don't know about these, these mobile suit designs. They're like really wacky. And the entire concept of like, why does my Gundam have a giant mustache? I didn't quite appreciate it as much as I did at the time, but revisiting it again, it this really is, it still is quite a wonderful show, I think. I mean, this was also the last hand-drawn, hand-painted 
Gundam show because the one proceeding right after this was the first completely like digitally colored Gundam C. Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) So this show was very much kind of a switching of like eras. And I got to make the argument for the hand-drawn animation. I just feel like it just looks really nice to me. And I feel like it just holds up better. Yeah, it definitely looks better than Gundam Seed. Now, bear in mind, it has been a while since I saw Gundam Seed. I might have had my, you know, biases a little bit, you know, distorted by the fact that Gundam Seed Destiny was absolutely awful. But even then, I mean... I'm just saying, did we really need another retelling of the one-year war? I mean, apart from the other ones we got, which is to say Gundam Wing and also Gundam X, even though Gundam X was the best one, why did it get canceled? It was the best one. Why did why did it get canceled? I mean, I know why it got canceled, but... Ah, uh, jeez. <laughs> the, the, the good things always get, always get ruined. It was Mad Max with Gundams, guys. Mad Max with Gundams. But anyways, getting back to turn A. No, I, I kind of agree. I was right there with you there, Cog. When I was younger, just getting into Gundam and I heard about Turn A, I saw it and I'm like, what the heck is this? Right. It, with, it, with its mustache. <laughs> it's, it's really, really like aerodynamic, sleek design. What the heck is this? This is not Gundam Wing. Ugh, this is dumb. But I mean, getting back into the series about... 2008 when dynasty warriors gundam 2 was a thing and i'm like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna main i'm gonna main turn a i i don't really know much about it i'm gonna main turn a and then i'm just flying around moonlight butterflying everything i'm like hey yeah yeah i did the same thing that's a it's a darn shame though that um turn x is not nearly as good in that one as it should have been but it's all now. I'm. I mean, I definitely look at look back at it with a little more fondness because at the end of the day, when you really think about it, it's like if you've ever wondered that question, what is that the heart of the Gundam universe? What is that one thing that ties all these crazy different Gundam shows together? And Tomino's answer is a giant mustache. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the period. It's supposed to be turn A. This is kind of hits close to home to me because it's supposed to be the period point at the end of Gundam. You're like, yeah, okay, you guys can just, you know, and it's basically him saying farewell to Gundam, or it was up until Reconquista and G, where he, you know, came back. But it was, yeah, it was basically Tamino just being like, okay, I'm I'm done with Gundam. This is the period point on Gundam. Gundam's going to continue, but I mean, I'm done with it. And it's that's the Gundam series at the end of the grand overarching Gundam history. It's just like, and then there's turn A. Well, but of course, then Gundam Seed happened and just proceeded to promptly ignore, you know, the fact that it had gravitas, uh, a moral, a likable protagonist, you know, all these things. I mean, what even is the heck is the is the theme of of Gundam Seed? Uh, natural born people are better than the genetically engineered supermen, and so you know, bow down to your earth overlords, you know, colonist scum. And if you ever pick a fight, people way stronger than you will just pummel you to death for no good reason. Yeah, stop fighting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like, um, going back to Loran as a character, he really is one of the better Gundam pilots out there because he's just such a nice guy. He's one of the most mature 
Something I really appreciate about him when I compare him to some of the other Gundam pilots is that he's very decisive. At the same time that he's sitting here in the middle of this conflict, literally in the middle of it, because he's been living on Earth for like the last two years. He's fallen in love with the planet. He shows you right at the beginning. He's like, I love being here. I, you know, I can't wait for everybody to come. And then we have the moon race conflict and he's quick on his feet. He's right there to defend Earth's people. When you compare him to some of the other Gundam pilots, something I definitely appreciate is this. He He's a lot more decisive. He doesn't have that hyper pacifistic element to him where it becomes so crippling. Like, oh, why are we fighting? We got to stop fighting. You know, he, he's he's pretty quick to be like, you know what? I'm going to defend myself if you if you do if you do this. I'm telling you, I don't want to fight, but if, but if I have to fight, I'm going to. I think also his thing too is the fact that he's not constantly like stop fighting and, and then just like he then crying. Exactly, he is very clearly a easygoing, very you know uh, peace loving guy. He just wants to serve his queen, live on Earth, eat Earth food, and hang out with his friends. But at the same time, though, he, as you say, Cog, he will defend those things he loves. But at the same time, he's not going to go out and just kill people. But you see that constantly with Poe and uh, Bruno and Jakob, the team rocket of Moonrace, basically. Those guys go up against him like Poe almost, you know, one time per episode. Bruno and Jakob basically like 10 times before they switch sides. He doesn't kill any of them. He, he could, by rights, you know, just be like, I've had enough of you guys and just, you know, ice all three. But he doesn't because there's no need. He is just doing what he needs to do to defend those things he loves. And then he is getting on with his life. He's not being preachy. He's not the savior of the world. He's just a guy who loves Mother Earth and loves his queen. And he does what he needs to do. I mean, here, here I'm going to say this. Do you think that Kira Yamato or Setsuna Fseye could like have an actual exoriating conversation with their, with their rivals while the cockpit's open, yelling at them about, you know, no, we need to, we need to save the earth. This is what we were fighting for. Can you imagine them actually doing that? Uh, Lauren did. He did it a bunch of times. Yeah. It's not the smartest thing he ever did. I'm just saying he did it. It, it doesn't help that a lot of attention is drawn to the cockpits of the suits. Yes. <laughs> Literal cockpits in a lot of ways. And like they have this really, really bizarre tube structure where you have to slide all the way to the bottom of the tube in order to open the cockpit in order to shout at the other person. I'm like, don't you guys have radios? There is a lot of very obvious jokes in this show. The entire Gundam being piloted from its cockpit. And you see it even through some of the other characters. When Corin Nander shows up, if you look at that suit, and he's got the big old arrow pointing up right on the front of his suit. And, you know, and Loran always getting hitting the jewels. It's it's a regular gag through the whole thing. It doesn't really help when you realize the rocket for the turn A is actually its core fighter too. So you're literally flying to the moon. <laughs> that yeah. is something uh, that was an interesting observation just watching this. I actually really loved when they had this those weird scenes like you were talking about, Snack, where they were having issues with the radios and things. 
I really loved when they showed those scenes of people just having trouble with their mobile suits. Like, for example, when you have Loran like losing his balance in the turn A and he bumps heads with his Harry's sumo and it just like falls over. Or there's the scene where like Loran is calling Masashi and the volume on the, the phones are not right and they're like shouting at each other. I, I love those little elements because it makes it feel so kind of grounded. Because if you think about the idea of like a giant mecha in general, good lord, the mechanical problems that are bound to exist. It's as I, that's kind of what I was going in about before Cog about the fact that like just having mobile suits in general was a, like a, is a, considered a big deal, and the fact that no one on the Earth side seems to know how they work. Yeah, that's kind of the the big advantage that the Moonrace has is that they know how their tech works, whereas Earth has ultimately comparable mobile suits to the Moonrace. You we soon discover. The thing being, though, is that they don't understand how half the tech works that they actually have. So they kind of have to get sneaky. And that's really their thing is that they uh, are not quite, you know, beholden to just the arrogance of the moon race and just, oh, we know how mobile suits work. And therefore, we are better than these Earth peasants. <laughs> but yeah, honestly, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things like I really like. In, for instance, Eighth MS team, when you see these huge sweeping battles where you have, you know, dozens of gyms and, you know, fighting dozens of Zakus. But on the other hand, it's like you have two, three guys in turn A, you know, two, two Wadoms versus, you know, the Capuls. They have four Capuls or High Dogs and they have to, you know, th th that's that's the battle. That's the battle. I mean, granted, you can't have more than a few Wadoms like that because they're just so huge, but... And I mean, it's it's a much more intimate, much more grounded thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is very slice of life in the beginning of it. Like, it's enjoyable. I do feel that there are pacing issues with the show overall. Oh, God, yes. Like talk, it, it is definitely a, a buildup. Oh, God, yes. It is, a, it is a slow burn. But, I mean, on the other hand, though, I feel like that's somewhat to its credit because kind of like what you were mentioning when we were talking before, Cog, is that like the the great thing, honestly, about that is like when things do get going and you start to realize like, wait, this thing that we used to wash clothes, this thing we used to catch cows destroyed human civilization. <laughs> it's kind of a humbling thought, you know, it's very humbling. And all, like all those things that they did with turn A come into stark contrast of, oh, my God, we were basically playing choo-choo trains with a nuclear bomb. Yeah, it just goes back to like what you were saying too with how everything was so alien, especially when the nuke goes off and Loran is like, we were just trying to come back to Earth. Who would build tools like this? Mm -hmm. It just, you know, illustrates again just how far removed they are from everything else, from the UC and everything like that. And it is a very different kind of Gundam show. I was about to say, I think like War Crimes McGee would, you know, be very much at home in the Titans. So <laughs> kill civilians can do. <laughs> yeah, I will say I definitely think it begins to pick up more in the second half of the series. Things start to get a bit more intense as we move out into space and we get introduced to more of you know our main antagonist, such as Agrippa Maintainer, who is Deanna's chancellor. And he's been working on effectively while she's been gone, been working on consolidating power for himself on the moon. And his whole plan is basically to just keep everyone he considers to be good on the moon and force everyone else he thinks is bad down to earth. And we have another pretty big and pretty great antagonist 
with Mr. Gim Ginganam. And his main focus is to bring about the second coming, as it were, of the dark history with his suit, the Turn X, because he essentially believes the only way humankind is able to grow and move forward is through facing conflict. Which is something interesting because I, having rewatched it, they bring up the dark history really early on, like episode three, when they actually start excavating the mountain cycle, the prospectors... Uh, I forget their names, but they mention it's like, oh, yes, you know, ever since the white doll turned out to be a mobile suit, we think that the dark history is a way that we can you know, determine where more, more mobile suits are because the white doll was the, the central figure of the dark history. And they just kind of casually mention it like that. And they're like, oh, OK, that's nice. And you don't really understand. It's like, no, this is actually a thing. But it's, you know, almost at the very end when the actual when Ging Ginganam actually activates the uh, chronicles of the dark history. Yeah, when they actually open it up and we actually get to see UC Gundam and actually there are some Gundam wing scenes in there as well. There's very clearly a scene of Sandrock doing his cross attack on some Leos. Oh, yeah. Uh, Corin Nander, if I remember right, he has a flashback to Wing Zero. And if Corin Nander is actually a Oz pilot who survived an encounter with Wing Zero. And then that dude needs like whatever the uh, moon race equivalent of, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor is because that dude, (laughs) you know, had actions above and beyond a soldier that he actually lived. That is one of the the fan theories that he was from the after colony uh, century. And I mean, actually... uh, I looked this up too. The only there's only three Gundam series apparently that are officially not part of the history leading up to the dark history into the corrected century, and that's Double O Age and IBO. And basically, they're saying yes, Turn A. It's it's where all the other Gundam series are leading to somehow. And I mean, it goes with the Turned A. Yeah, the Turned A is a specific mathematical reference to the universal quantifier. Which is cool. It covers all data within a given data set. Effectively, that's what turn A means. Basically, yeah, it's turn A, you know, includes all Gundam. I mean, that's not really true anymore, considering there actually is, you know, Anno Domini Gundam now. Thanks. Th- th- thank you, Gundam 00. Yeah. I-, I sure I sure do love how, you know, solar-powered nuclear reactors work. <laughs> oh, I can't really stay mad at you. Mr. Bushido is freaking awesome, so. <laughs> well, I-, I actually have a theory on this. Oh, um, are you going to tell tell the, the good folks there your theory there, Snack? Well, as I was saying, I do have a theory, and there is some stuff that backs me up on this. Now, a widely held fan theory. If you look at the Turn X, it kind of looks like it's a shell built around something substantially smaller than itself. And there is a scene where it uses an attack that strongly resembles the Shining Finger. So there is... No, it's not It's not just strongly resembles. Uh, Gim Ginganam, when he does it, actually goes, guess I'll use it. The shining finger. So it is actually the shining finger. So it's there is some theory. And I remember reading this on a certain Chinese underwater basket weaving forum on their M section, whereupon they speculated that the turn X was actually what would happen if DG cells were left in the Guiana Highlands around the shining Gundam 
and allowed to just keep evolving and eventually just self-evolved around the Shining Gundam into what would eventually become Turn X. Wow. And if, and if you look, if you look at the way the Turn A operates, it honestly has a lot of similarities to the mobile trace system. Now, it could be maybe a prototypical trace system or the system that superseded it, because a lot of it... Now, Loran complains he can't do very precise movements with it, but it seems very fluid and very intuitive and very vr head. Well, he mentions, if you're talking about like the time they catch the cow, he mentioned the reason why he can't do precise movements is because he wants to ensure that he doesn't crush the people he's picking up. Oh, yeah, that, I love that, that scene where he's trying to pick up, I think it's a pig, and he's like, this thing wasn't actually designed, I don't think, to, to, to move these animals like this. No, I don't think it was. The the turn A, and you can see this best in Dynasty Warriors Gundam 2 and 3. Burning Gundam and Turn A Gundam are way, way smaller than like every other Gundam. So I think, and this is just my theory, I think Turn A is either once was a Gundam fight unit or came directly on the heels of the Gundam fights. Wait, are you saying Turn A is a Gundam fight unit? It, uh, it's either... No, no, no. See, see, no, no, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because they actually do mention where the Turn A and the Turn X come from. Your theory holds up with the Turn X. The thing is, though, is they mention the Turn X actually showed up very early in the corrected century, where it just drifted into the solar system out of out from outer space. Humanity at some point actually did get extra solar colonies, but they lost contact with them. But out of nowhere, they just get this unit just comes floating in and they look at it and go, this technology is so much more advanced than anything we have. What if there is an entire nation with technology like this? We need a weapon that can counter them. So with that in mind, that's where the turn A comes from. The turn A is a weapon to counter the turn X. That's the reason why when you see Gim Ginganom in their last final confrontation, he's like, wonderful. This is so wonderful. The Turn X is very truly Turn A's older brother. That's where it's coming from. I'm not saying that you're not right in terms of, you know, or the fact that the theory about Shining Gundam being uh, Turn X is not a. a OK, not so, so the Turn A is probably not because it very clearly could be. I'm just saying. Uh, we know where the turn A comes from. It was made by the moon race or made by the predecessors to the moon race. Right. So in that vein, it probably never participated in a Gundam fight. But think about the structure of the turn A, the way it's built, the way it's designed and the overall size. It looks to me like some history of the Gundam fight must have continued to exist because turn A strongly resembles a mobile fighter. I will agree that the the control system is very similar. I mean, that even to the fact that it they have their initiation ceremony for adults and they show the contact points whereupon the system seems to connect to the pilot's back. Uh, I mean, that that very clearly is some kind of either if not like a mobile trace system, then some kind of like Psychomu system. But so I think you might be onto something, Snack. I'm just my one thing with that, though, and I suppose you could. There are arguments around this is the fact that the Turn X is significantly larger than mobile fighters and also the Shining Gundam itself. And I'm not even talking like a little, little, little bit. I'm talking like it's it's like two heads over. Yeah, no, it, it's tremendous. It, it's a huge, huge machine by comparison. But as I said, there seems to be a lot of empty space inside of Turn X, and we see a little bit of that when it takes some damage. And as I postulated, I think it's DG cells that built a shell 
encapsulating the Shining Gundam in order to take what it considered the best available data, given that the Shining Gundam did in fact defeat Devil Gundam in the, in the Guiana Highlands, and decide to evolve into something more and took the body along for the ride. There's one one other problem. The Turnex's cockpit is in the head. Well, as said, I think it's a shell. I don't think he is physically standing where Domon stood. I think he is just in a bigger casing of DG cells that incorporated Shining Gundam into its design somewhere and is using it for battle data and extra weaponry. Fascinating. That's an interesting theory. That seems fair. I mean, as I say, I, I quite like the idea. I mean, it really makes sense when you consider what the Moonlight Butterfly nanomachines did to the mobile suits that they sealed away. They basically just locked them in stasis. What was the ultimate Gundam, the, the actual true form of the Devil Gundam? What was the ultimate, ultimate Gundam supposed to do? It was supposed to restore Mother Nature on Earth. That I mean, it. what is it doing? It's literally taking weapons out of the system and preserving them. It's not a weapon of war. If anything, it's closer to what the Devil Gundam was supposed to be. So I, I, I think there's weight to what you're saying. Ultimately, in order to talk about that more, I think I would need to actually read the Turn A Gundam novel, which goes more into what happened in the last moments of the dark history and also kind of gives a, a very small glimpse into what the Turn A's true power is, which is some pretty crazy stuff, might I add. You know, you know, all these people were like, what's the final ultimate power of uh, Strike Freedom Gundam or oh, double O Razor? I'm like, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. Tur- turn A is stronger than both of them combined. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's powered basically by an artificial black hole. And then from what I have read, even when it did the Moonlight Butterfly on Earth to begin the, the Dark History wipeout, it was apparently only working at about 20% capacity. So very powerful. You know, as much as I hate hate to say it, I mean, as much as trite as it is, it's basically a super robot that just kind of wandered in to a slice of life show. <laughs> that is a good, actually, that's a really good way to put it. And then, you know, you don't really realize it's like, oh, oh, hey, Tierney, how's your sex life? And he's like, it's fine. I'm just gonna, you know, I don't know, feeling cute, might end all human civilization later. I don't know. <laughs> All right, guys. All right. I wanted to segue into music because this show was so good. Oh, yeah. It's like, this is the one show. It's like, I wish JoJo season one had like a soundtrack like this one because I'm like, Snack turned to me and he's like, quick, Yutaku, what's your favorite opening theme? I'm like, I, uh, 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 I like them both. They're both good. This one was the legendary Yoko Kano also known for her work in some of my, I mean, amazing anime soundtracks, along with Turn A, the Macross franchise, the Cowboy Bebop soundtrack. Say what you will about the Cowboy Bebop show. Its soundtrack is still amazing. The Ghost in the Shell franchise, Darker Than Black, Wolf's Rain, Space Dandy. She even did the uh, Miyazaki film Porco Rosso. Yeah among a lot of other stuff. Hmm. But yeah, it's phenomenal. I love the, I think it's called Moon. It's the the big ending theme that they play a lot. It's just phenomenal. Uh, which one, the big? The one where it's actually doing the la-la-loo, la-la-loo. Oh, not, not the, the operatic singing whenever like Turn A or Turn X does something big and scary, which I noticed that that one's actually called Dark, dark History or Black History. 
And I noticed they started playing that early, like turn A wakes up and they start playing that. I'm like, damn, I didn't notice that at first. Okay. I, I have the hard question for you, Ditaku. All right, fine. Turn A, turn or color century. Uh, why, why you do this to me? <laughs> I, I, I like the boat. I like the boat. But <laughs> if I have to choose, probably turn a turn just because the didgeridoo starting at the very beginning is so alien and weird. And I think that's like such a good way to get people in the mood for turn a. But that's not to say century color is bad because it's a lot more upbeat than turn a turn is, which is good because at that point, things are actually starting to get really action packed. So, ah, no, I, I like the both, but ah. I have to go for Century Color. It's a bit faster if it's the mood. I like Turn A Turn. I like Turn A Turn a lot. It's a good song. I just think Color Century is a little more, you know, it gets me a bit more excited to watch the show. I think that the funny thing is, I, I've listened to the full versions of the songs, and having rewatched the show, I've gotten so used to it again. So it'll just be the point in each one where the Turn A Gundam Turn, and then you'll just have the Turn A Gundam. And I'm like, oh, I miss that. That's actually a really cool little thing. Yeah, they keep that through both. The uh, Obviously, it's in the first intro, but they kind of do a modified version in the second one. Just It's like um, I'm so used to, uh, in, for instance, in Gunbuster, having the little eye catches where they're just like, Gunbuster. It's like, I like that, even though it is just literally there to go, wake up, stupid. The commercials are over. Yeah. This one, this soundtrack is very fleshed out and deliberate and very phenomenal. It's very, very haunting. A lot of operatic yes. singing, a lot of, of very woodwinds, so that it's just very kind of gothic in a way. But I think that works. Oh, okay. Uh, we, we've put our chips down. Which theme song do you think is the oh, best? Oh, my favorite tune of the whole series, I think I think it's called Moon. It's the big, like, it's the last theme that gets played at the end of the show. It's the one where usually when something big and epic happens, it comes, it's not, it's not one of the main, like, beginning or endings, but it's my, easily my favorite theme. Oh, so it's not the, it's, it's not the ending where Loran's flying off into space. Okay, that, that, that's fair, but. We've made very decisive statements on the theme song specifically. So which theme oh, song? Oh, oh gotcha, is your gotcha. I'm gonna go with turn A. Yeah, the first one. Solid. Okay, that's fair. I just I just wanted to hear. Okay, your, yeah, your I'm just saying my favorite of tune of the my favorite song of the, all of Turn A, I believe the track's called Moon, is that theme that they bring in. But when it comes to the intro or outro, I'm gonna go with turn A. Turn a turn. If I had to just have any theme, I'd, I'd probably have to say Black History is one of my favorite. And I, as a as a GM, forever GM in my tabletop games, I liberally steal from Turn A's soundtrack for when things go crazy, and or also I'm using a you know we are an ancient civilization and our technology and ways are ancient and older than you have ever known. And Snick can attest to this because he's had a few situations, particularly in Exalted, where he just happens to unearth a ancient battle robot. And then I just proceed to go, and now dark history plays. And he goes, oh. <laughs> I know that you're, you're scheming. Not that I'm not aware. Even with that, dark history is just an awesome, awesome song. I would say it's probably my favorite off the soundtrack. So, guys, I mean, now that we've done that, the million-dollar question has to come down. I got the gun here. 
It is a 50 caliber laser gun. Snack. That's a big laser. I know. All the better to pull a scanners on you. All right, Snack. Favorite character and favorite mobile suit. Okay. I know it's not the popular choice. Overall, my favorite character actually was Loran because he is so atypical as a Gundam protag. He has that heart of gold thing going, but they don't treat him like a puppy. He has to earn the respect of the people around him, and he does. But I have to admit, my wife, who is Mayashi Kune, she does not get nearly enough screen time, and she is just adorable. And my favorite overall suit, I would have to say, is probably the sumo. It's just a really, really cool design, and it appeals to my inner technophile. Cool. Good choices. All right, Mr. Cog. Laser guns pointed at you now. All right. So I think my top three characters of turn A, I really like Laurent. I really like Harry Ord, who we didn't actually talk about. He's actually really interesting insofar as like he was supposed to be a Char character. And yet they basically do the exact opposite of all the other Char characters. And just like he's actually got like a moral center and a backbone. And it's it's great. Well, not just that, but he's like he just happens to be wearing sunglasses at all hours. Yeah, there's no real reason other than he just likes wearing his sunglasses as to why he's got his little mask. And then Gim himself is a great villain. He's just so big. And every anytime he's in he's in a scene, he is the center of attention. But that being said, I'm going to go with Loran as my favorite character, much like Snack talked about. He is, I really like how he is a much more mature kind of Gundam pilot than what you get in some of the other just mecha series. So a lot, a lot of them, like we talked about having that very like pass absolute pacifistic ideology that just becomes like so crippling to them. And they start making a lot of the same mistakes over and over and over again. Whereas you don't really get that with Loran. And my favorite suit, I actually visually like the design of Turn X. I really like Turn X. That's a good choice. Uh, I guess I'm pointing the laser gun at myself now. I want you to know this was a, a moon race laser gun. I, I'd have to say in terms of characters, I, I guess I'm going to just follow the bandwagon on this one. I really like Loran. I, I think he's just a really really great guy and the fact that you know he he actually does follow through with you know the fact that he wants to produce a peaceful country you know, a peaceful land where everyone can live together and he actually doesn't just go and now you all need to stop fighting and he just shoots lasers everywhere i'm like curiomato i mean what <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness but um yeah he actually you know acts on what he believes rather than just yelling it really loudly oh don't worry he does a lot of yelling too but you know, he he does his actions speak louder than his words. So he's a he's a really great protagonist. I never really, you know, was like, uh, there's enough Loran here. Ugh. It's always kind of fun just to see him do things and kind of go through his day uh, in terms of my favorite. I mean, I love to turn a but I have to I have to rep for the Wadom. It is so silly looking. It's got a gigantic head and the, t you know, the spindly little chicken legs. But just for being a mook unit it like it doesn't it's kind of imposing just for how tall it is and they don't get blown up like a million of them in a minute like the zaku or the leo or you know the other other mook units it's it, even towards the end of the series it's pretty imposing and uh, i think that's kind of cool and like oh yeah oh yeah look it's a mook unit that's actually not just like a total joke 
It's the pilot that makes it a joke. Poor, poor Lieutenant Bo. So, gents, I think we've talked about a story. We've talked about characters. We've talked about music. Uh, shall we go into our final assessments? Sounds, yeah, good. sounds good. All right. So uh, I'm going to go opposite now. Mr. Cog, what, what's, what are your final thoughts, sir? All right. So I'd say overall, like I said, my appreciation for Ternay has continued to rise over the years. I have a lot more respect for it now than I used to. It really is a good show. It does have some pacing issues overall. Is it because of those pacing issues that, or the fact that you're because like you're more patient now or? Um, I think a lot of it was more aesthetics. First, just getting used to the setting, for example, because it's just, it was so outside uh, what I think I was expecting back then from my sci-fi stuff. I was like, what is this 19th century stuff and the weird clothes and, and the mobile suit designs, especially I was like, what is up with the stupid mustache? It's like, I don't actually see a Gundam in this show, it sort of felt like. And it's it's interesting because later on, I did see this redesigned concept artwork from some of the other Gundam creators where they actually did this sort of reimagine, reimagining of the Ternay head. It didn't end up in the anime or the games or anything, but the idea would have been that the front of the mustache looking part would have actually separated and opened out to look kind of like these side horns of like a warrior helmet. And then like the red piece that you see at like the bottom center was actually going to be the goatee part. And then you would have seen the, you know, the more prototypical Gundam face underneath. And honestly, I really think that still would have probably been a lot cooler or given me that more of a sense of this is a Gundam show. But on top of that, I, I don't necessarily know that I'm more patient now, but the slower pace does still get to me a bit, but I think it's just how it's executed in this sense with in conjunction with the artwork and the music, it really kind of helps convey this sort of react really relaxing sort of atmosphere when they're doing those more slice of life moments. And I will say, honestly, there are some characters that do really kind of fall flat for me. Kiel being an example, she is a major character, but Kiel doesn't really feel like she really is a character because her whole thing is just, being Deanna and just switching with her. And it sort of feels a lot like they are just actually like one in the same. And she ends up just not having much of an individual personality for herself. Um, if I were to rate this one, I would say old me would have probably given this like a six out of 10, but I'm going to say current me. I think I'm going to give this a solid eight out of 10. All right. Well, Mr. Snick. Now your turn, sir. What are your final thoughts? For context, I started watching this years ago, and the site I was watching it on disappeared into the ether. Are you talking about your totally legitimate streaming service? <clears throat> yeah, that, uh. that thing that's totally legit and legal. And <clears throat> Anyway, I started watching the series a few years ago, got halfway, and ended up being cut off. So watching it again, it does make me realize that, yeah, there is a, a lot of that slice of life stuff in the show. But I liked it. I liked having it there. And having it there gave me a better appreciation for the latter half of the series when things became a lot more action-oriented. And I really liked seeing Loran as a character pushing for this, no, guys, we're all human. We really shouldn't be fighting. This is ultimately meaningless. I, I share some of Cog's gripes, though. Honestly, a lot of the, like, the main cast who are 
basically like ancillary pilots or just not even pilots really slow the pacing of the show down. Are, are, are you talking about worst girl? Y- yes. Worst. You guys, we, we joke about rain just being like a total downer, but like whenever Sochi shows up, <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. So she's another one. And that's... Lauren's such a nice guy. You can't just be like, Sochi adults are talking, go back to your rich pampered I mean, lifestyle. Jesus, the guy jumps out of an airship just to like talk to her and land on a plane. And get, it, yeah. She is not, fun character to be around she's just aggravating and uh it's it's super frustrating to cope and you know you have kiel who as cog said is completely interchangeable with this other character to the point that she may as well have not have been in the show well the entire thing i think with it with her is supposed to be the fact that look there's no difference between earth race and moon race yeah, I, I kind of agree, though. The other thing is she's kind of just like the younger version of Deanna because they end up switching. Yeah, really early on, too. Deanna goes off. Yeah, because, you know. I mean, that's the entire thing. Like when Corin Nander has his big showdown with Lauren in the volcano and they're like, Queen Diana, there's a Gundam there. At what point do Gundams have mustaches? Well, I... And he just knocks him into the volcano. <laughs> Overall, I, I really, really like Ternay. There's a lot of really genuine moments, a lot of really good character moments. But I will be the first to admit, it's a lot of filler. The entire story probably could have been told in a feature-length film. A whole lot wouldn't have been lost in the transition, is what I'm saying. Uh, I would actually not watch the two films. There are two f- compilation films, and they are a complete and total mess. I didn't actually get around to watching those. so I, I um, The first know. one is Turn A Gundam 1, Earth Light, and then the second movie is Turn A Gundam 2, Moonlight Butterfly, and they are just two compilation movies of the total 50 episodes. It tells the entire story between the two movies, but it really comes down to the way it was edited. The editing on them is pretty horrendous, and yeah. it can be... Very yeah. hard to follow if you are not kind of familiar with it. I was speaking, of course, in the hypothetical. Just there's a lot of filler. There's a lot of characters who are there, who are there prominently, and probably don't need to be there at all. I hate this to make it sound like I'm ragging on it because I'm not. I think Cog's eight out of ten assessment is very fair. And just this once, I'm going to use a numeric value just because I think he laid such a good baseline for it. It's a great show, and I, I actually think. A turn A is one of the more underrated Gundam series. Yeah. So so what's your final score there, Mr. Snack? Oh, right. I can't just steal cogs, can I? I have to keep up with my I have to keep up my gimmicks. You you can just, you know No, run. no, I I feel I owe it to myself to see how long I can run with this before I finally burn out on it. I'll give this a moonlight butterfly over the earth. <laughs> uh okay. So complete and utter destruction. The end of all human civilization as we know it. <laughs> the end of all things. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yep. Yep. Not taking it back now. Okay. I, I like that. I, I, I guess there are no take backsies from the Moonlight <laughs> Butterfly. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean to push that button. Oh, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> no, wait. I bet you do that. Jeez. Uh, you raise valid points. And, Thank you, Snack, for reminding me about Sochi. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I remembered her from because I watched the show uh, about halfway through. 
like 10 years ago. And man, even then, I'm like, oh, yeah, Sochi's going to be a total buzzkill. And like, man, I did not remember how much I just did not like her as a character. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I really like Dernay. I, I feel like even though the slow buildup is very clearly deliberate, yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree. the The pacing should have been; it, they shouldn't have had so much faffing around. I, I think that you know, it being far more grounded, far more intimate, you know, you're allowed more of that. But at the same time, yeah, after a certain point, they should have kind of cut away from just like, "Oh, guys, we're going to go to vicinity city." It's like, yeah, but do we? I mean, really, really, we're we're going to be going to space soon. Do we really need to? I mean, what is a Steven Universe? I don't care about the randos that, you know, are at Keith's Bakery, okay? In that regard, I kind of, I, I agree with Snack. It, it probably could have been ultimately, like, bumped down to, like, 26 episodes if you had removed, like, Loran's cow and stuff like that. And still probably had, ultimately, the slow buildup to show, like, oh, yeah, Turn A is actually really horrendously, scarily powerful. You know, it's it's Gundam. It's never going to be just 26 episodes for a main series Gundam. With that in mind, I think I'm going to give this one a, I think I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. Only, and I mean, and that's not a, that's not a slight against this. I'm not a, a modern games journalist. I quite like the series, but at the same time, though, it is a extremely slow paced series for the good chunk of the story. It kind of has the Steven Universe problem of just, here's everybody, but like 33% of them don't really matter. On top of that, I mean, it's just really weird compared to Gundam. And there's really, I uh, unlike G Gundam, I can't even really, you know, say, oh, it's like, it's just, you know, Gundam, but Shodan fighting. It's really weird like that. It's to its credit, I can't think of another series that's quite like Turn A, but on the other hand, it's, also really hard to kind of take without just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, I'll. it's kind of an acquired taste ultimately is what I guess I'm saying, which makes it great. But at the same time though, I mean, you kind of got to be prepared for something a little bit weird when you watch it. And that's the reason why I'm giving it a 7.5. Excellent show, but it does have pretty glaring faults, but even still, it's definitely worth it. I totally agree with you there. If you're new to Gundam, Turn A is not where I would start. No, no, no. Just saying. This is, Turn A is somewhere that you kind of arrive at eventually. Yeah. (laughs) Which is ultimately the entire point and the significance of the Turn A. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely spot on. So, gentlemen, ladies, TAC Helicopters, thank you very much for joining with us once again. Next time, all right, Cog, you ready? You ready? You got your, you got your, you got your drums? You got your drums? You got your drums? You got your drums? You got your eraser? You got to erase that, you know, number of times until Cog's series is finally... Because guess what there, guy? It's zero now. It's zero. Well, we we have a one... We, we have a one out of one chance of pulling Thunderbolt Gundam. Mobile yes. Suit Gundam Thunderbolt. Ladies and gentlemen, it is... <laughs> You could put it down in the calendars. Cog finally got one of his picks. And on top of that, it's Thunderbolt Gundam, which, remember, we're going to go way back to One Year War when the Earth Federation were scheming, conniving. 
Spacenoids were jackbooting nationalists. Colonies were being dropped on Australia. And no one liked Char as Yes, we are going right back to Universal Century. Where we started. So, ladies, gentlemen, everyone, space dolphins from Gundam 00, join us next time when we take a look at Thunderbolt Gundam. See you there. Thank you for listening to the Tomodachi Brothers Review Podcast. Produced and recorded by The Hipster Snack, Ditaku, and Cog. Sound design and editing by executive producer Sean Taylor Brown with Cog Sound Engineering. Music written and performed by Sean Taylor Brown with Costas Voss of Core Inside Studio on the drums. We hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tomodachi Bros Anime Podcast. I'm one of the co-founders and co-hosts of the podcast, The Hipster Snack. If you want more content from me, I have my own YouTube channel, The Hipster Snack. Links will be available everywhere I can spam it up until I get a custom one, but all in due time. I do weekly game reviews, and in the future, probably more than that. Look forward to it, and I'll see you there and on Twitter, at Hipster Snack. See ya!